1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This evening, the Canadian Consulate for the Southeastern U.S. will present a multi-generational, multicultural, virtual event in celebration of Women's History Month wise woman the show takes its name from the song and music video created for this month the concert will be co-hosted by twin kennedy sisters carly and julie kennedy along with another canadian artist mallory johnson we'll hear more about the event and some of their music later this hour first An effort is underway to honor the memory of many enslaved people who lived in Marietta before the end of the Civil War. Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society is partnering with Kennesaw State University School of Art and Design to create a garden sculpture on the grounds of the William Root House in Marietta. Trevor Beamon is executive director of Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society. He joins us now with the sculptor, Paige Birch, who teaches at KSU. Welcome to City Lights. Thank
2: you. Thank you.
1: Trevor, please tell us who were William and Hannah Root?
2: So William and Hannah were early settlers in Cobb County. They both arrived in the 1830s and they moved to Marietta and William was the first druggist in Marietta and their home portions of it date to the 1830s, but the earliest date we can peg on them living there is 1845. Their home today is the oldest home remaining in downtown Marietta and it's been preserved and restored back to its 1860s appearance as a house museum.
1: How has the house changed over time? And actually, how did Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society acquire it for restoration? The house
2: originally was on Church Street, right across from St. James Church. And after the Root family moved out of the house in the 1890s, in 1893, it was moved to build the first public library in Cobb County, the Clark Library. And so it was moved to the back of that lot And then it was converted into apartments during World War II for workers at the Bell Bomber plant. And then it was just kind of used as an apartment building and then kind of set empty for a few decades. And then in 1989, it was going to be demolished for a parking lot. And that's when Cobb Landmarks was able to step in and relocate the house a block from that location and restore it back to its original condition.
1: Would you talk about the plants and herbs in the garden and their connection to William Root's practice?
2: Sure. William, being a a druggist, he didn't receive any formal training. There wasn't like any schooling like that in this part of Georgia. And so he just would have read uh, medical journals and things like that. And he actually got into the business as an internship with a drugstore owner. It was almost like a chain of drugstores. And so William would open up franchises for him. And the store he opened in Marietta was a franchise for this man. And William ended up buying it out and making it his own drugstore. But he sold all kinds of things like a drugstore today, medicines, but also, you know, hardware and stationery and things like that. But a lot of the medicines, if they weren't patent medicines, they could have been things that would have been homeopathic. So he would have had a pretty substantial herb garden. And so the gardens at the root house, all the plants have been researched for availability to a middle-class family in Marietta, Georgia during that time period. The plants are treated just like any other object in the museum collection. And how did this new garden project come about? I grew up at the root house. I started volunteering when I was 12. And when I started there, they really focused on the parents, you know, William and Hannah. And part of what I wanted to do as a kid even was to incorporate the children's stories the root children and then about six years ago i was hired as executive director and i just wanted to continue growing those stories at the root house and so part of it was the story of the enslaved people that lived at the root house and lived in marietta and there just really hadn't been much research done part of this expansion was to bring in a cabin which would have represented the slave dwelling that was on the property and we know from insurance records all the outbuildings that were on the property and where they were located and roughly what size they were construction materials. We were donated an 1830s log cabin from Cobb County, and it was in Powder Springs. We had to relocate it to the root house. And when we did that, we expanded the gardens. And part of that expansion we included was a garden that would have had plants that would have been traditionally grown by enslaved individuals. That part of the property is really important to telling the full story about what happened at the root house. And so the the sculpture idea was kind of a way to augment that in a really creative and meaningful way.
1: Paige, would you talk about creating the sculpture? I read you're doing this with 3D technology. Yes.
0: Trevor approached me with a really solid idea of what he wanted in the sculpture. They wanted it to be a figurative memorial sculpture, but they wanted it to sort of mimic the way the enslaved people were treated. You know, they wanted them only to be seen when they wanted to be seen, So we have some really pretty excellent 3D scanning technology. So we had a model come in and she was wearing period appropriate clothing. We 3D scanned her, created a digital file and we have 3D prints of that model. And so we can scale that to any size that we need to. What we're able to do is go into some of these programs that we have, these 3D modeling programs and slice it into individual layers So what we're going to be doing is having each layer of a profile cut out, and then it's gonna be made out of a material called weathering steel, which is gonna rust. And the rust actually, instead of being a cancerous rust, it's gonna preserve the steel. And so when you look at it head on, it's just gonna look like a set of vertical lines. But when you look at it from a three quarter or a profile view, it's actually going to resemble this figure the more you get into the profile of it. At this point, the whole thing is being done through digital technology. And once we have all the individual pieces made up into files, then we can go ahead and cut these pieces out and begin to weld the pieces together.
1: Who is the woman you scanned?
2: The woman we scanned is Misha Harp, and she's a local interpreter, but she specializes in food history. We have a a working 1850s cast iron stove. So she's come and done some cooking demonstrations in the kitchen. And so I approached her about the project and kind of explained what we were looking for and if she thought it was something that would be meaningful for her to be a part of. and, And she agreed. It was an unusual process to scan an entire person that I don't think they had done that quite yet at KSU.
1: What's the symbolism of the sculpture in the courtyard?
2: The way Paige
1: describes
2: the construction, it will be these thin vertical strips of metal. And so when you approach the statue, you actually won't even really be able to tell that it's there. And I almost want people to be surprised when they do finally notice it. And the symbolism that this enslaved population was an enormous population in Marietta. It's almost 45% of the individuals living in Marietta were enslaved during 1860. And So I want people to almost be surprised that, you know, these people were here and they were present, but that nobody recorded their names, nobody recorded their histories. I I just wanted it to be a really meaningful experience for people.
1: Recently, Civil War era letters were donated to Cobb landmarks. And these family papers and newly discovered public documents talk about enslaved individuals who lived on the property
2: not much research had been done. And part of that was that there wasn't a lot of research available easily in the 1980s and 90s when the house was first moved. But also just typically house museums in the past, I think, tended to present history almost unrealistically. The rooms were always perfectly assembled and everything was clean and they told happy stories and For me, I wanted to tell all the stories because, you know, life was messy back then, just like it is today. And for visitors, I think it's a little more relatable for them. We explore PTSD and suicide and child abandonment with the family. And so part of what happened in Marietta was also slavery. I even was ignorant of the extent in Marietta. Marietta was really unusual once we started doing the research, the number of enslaved people. It didn't really make sense um, because in this part of Georgia, there weren't plantations. Traditional cash crops didn't grow that well up here. And so why were these numbers so high comparatively? And what we found was Marietta very early on was settled by a lot of wealthy planters from Savannah and Charleston who would come up to Marietta. They considered it a summer resort. It was the mountains to them. And so there were fresh water mineral springs and hotels that were built and entertainment venues, and a lot of them built vacation homes. And part of what they brought with them was this culture of enslaved house servants, domestic slaves. When you look at the population of Marietta, that's really what most of these enslaved people would have been doing. So when we looked at the root family, it was a family of six with four enslaved individuals. And when you look at the city in general, it's 60% white and 40% black at that time. And so it follows that fairly closely. We knew from the census that they had four enslaved individuals. We didn't know very much about them. The one trail that we had was when we followed the census after the war, there was a a house servant named Elsie Blake. And when you followed her back into the 1860 and 1850 census or slave schedule, the ages match up. And so we felt fairly confident that that was probably the same person. It wasn't unusual after emancipation for enslaved individuals to stay and work with the family as an employee at that point. And then the letters came from a root family descendant. And there's Civil War era letters that mention a man named Lal, very often L-A-L-L, asking him to complete different tasks or reminding him to do things. And so we searched Law, and we were able to find a Law Burge in Bartow County in Marietta and found a Dr. Lorenzo Burge living in Marietta in the 1850s. And he was from Philadelphia, which is the same city that William Root came from. So William being a pharmacist and Lorenzo being a doctor, both from Philadelphia, we felt fairly confident that they probably knew each other. And that's maybe where Law came from.
1: And Law registered to vote.
2: Yes, which was very exciting to find that and see because... It's very difficult to find anything about these individuals. And then to see that he was able to move away and register to vote was really exciting to find.
1: Trevor, would you tell us about some of the upcoming events at the Root House?
2: Sure. In April, we're going to have our plant sale, our annual plant sale. And so talking about the garden, we we sell native Georgia plants and heirloom plants for that. It's a fundraiser for the museum. And then also in June, we're actually going to be unveiling the sculpture at a Juneteenth event at the root house, which will be June 12th. And so that's just going to be an opportunity for us to educate people about what Juneteenth is and what it means to the community and then share the
1: sculpture with the community as well. Paige, I'm sure that will be an exciting event for you.
0: Oh yes, no doubt. I run the Master of Craftsman program and we only focus on public art. And so whenever we have a chance to work with clients in the community and and especially to do really meaningful projects like this, it's exciting not only for us as an art department, but for the students as well, because it really shows them that art can make a difference and it really validates why they're here. And it allows us to connect to the community a lot better as an art department than we normally do, and this is, you know, a very timely and meaningful one that's coming up. We're all looking forward to it.
1: I've learned so much from this discussion and reading about your work. Trevor Beeman, Paige Birch, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Trevor Beeman is the Executive Director of Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society. Paige Birch is the Master Craftsman Program Director at the Kennesaw State University School of Art and Design. You can find more information about the William Root House and the Garden Project on our website, wabe.org citylights. The Canadian Consulate for the Southeastern United States is presenting a multi-generational and multicultural virtual event in celebration of Women's History Month. Wise Woman, the show, begins this evening at 7 with a special introduction by the Honorable Kirsten Hillman, Canada's ambassador to the United States. The show takes its name from the music video created for the month. The concert will be co-hosted by Twin Kennedy, sisters Carly and Julie Kennedy, along with another Canadian artist, Mallory Johnson, They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Hello, thank you so much for having us.
1: What a delight. Canadian people are always so warm and friendly. I mean, it is about as positive a stereotype as one could ever hope for.
3: Oh my goodness, that's the most lovely compliment. we. We are so lucky to be surrounded by so many wonderful Canadian women, that's for sure.
1: Okay. Well, how would each of you describe the genre of your music?
4: I think, well, we would describe ourselves as country music artists, first and foremost. However, we dabble a little bit in the Americana. You get a little bit of bluegrass. Of course, you hear Julie and Twin Kennedy. She plays a lot of fiddle. Uh, and the singer-songwriter as well. The beautiful thing about country music is that it's a very large umbrella of genres. So yeah, the the music we released together, so Wise Woman, this song specifically, kind of pays tribute to multiple genres within the country music world.
1: Mallory, you have said that icons like Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn influenced your approach to writing music. Would you say you are a country musician with a Celtic flair?
4: I would 100% say that. That's a really beautiful way to put it, and very accurate, actually. I grew up listening to Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn. My mother is a country artist as well, and being from Newfoundland and Labrador, I have a lot of Celtic influence. I grew up listening to Irish traditional music because that music is very prominent in Newfoundland. And yeah, so I grew up around the accordions and the bagpipes and I sang Celtic music. That was the first music I played professionally with my family band. So uh, it was, was, you kind of hear that crossover into my country music.
5: You try to tell me that
4: Mine speaks a sober heart. Country music was an easy transition for me, I guess you could say, because the backbone of both of those genres is storytelling. And I think that's so important to to a song and trying to relate to people and Uh, Yeah, I've just been loving every minute of it. And yeah, I guess you could say there's a lot of Celtic influence in my country music for sure.
1: (laughs) Well, with the last name of Kennedy, Carly and Julie, I think you come by that Celtic influence quite naturally.
3: You're definitely right about that. This is Carly talking to my twin sister, Julie. You can't see us, but we do even sound similar. Um, she's the fiddle player, and we definitely grew up playing a lot of fiddle music and, and fiddle tunes. So that sneaks into our music uh, many a time for sure. We both know it's been long enough. So what do you say we give into us? What do you say we just call it? From the west coast of canada we grew up in a small town called pal river in british columbia so we're bringing together the east coast and the west coast for this tune wise woman in the show wise woman the show so we're getting the celtic influences from both sides of the
1: country oh i love this it's sort of your answer to straight out of compton and <laughs> you know the new york rappers and then atlanta hip-hop actually people in the u.s have a very poor sense of Canadian geography, I, I think it may be fair to presume. It's such a vast country. How does the West Coast differ other than the geographical obviousness? Is there a different character to culture of the West Coast of Canada and where you're from, Mallory?
4: Yes, I would say there's a quite, quite a big difference between both coasts, which is why I say when you're coming to Canada, you got to go coast to coast, because it's very, very different. I'm sure the girls can speak about BC and the beauty of that province. It's so, so beautiful. But St. John's, which is the capital city of Newfoundland and Labrador, it's like walking down Temple Bar, Ireland, walking down George Street, St. John's. So There's, it's rich with music, a lot of the Celtic music, um, the traditional music. There's, oh, it's just, it's so beautiful in in its own way. And I'm so proud to be from there. And yeah, again, it's it's very different from BC. Uh, Newfoundland, of course, it's right on the water. Again, BC is right on the coast as well, but Newfoundland is an island. So we're surrounded by water. Uh, We're very proud of our fishing community, our music community. And the tourism is is really big there. So there's there's a lot of beauty to that province for sure.
3: Well, and all of us as artists, we've been lucky enough to get to see so much of the country. I know I can speak for ourselves, Twin Kennedy. We've toured all across Canada. We've seen uh, every province and every territory except for Newfoundland. So now Mallory's going to have us coming there as, as soon as we can after the pandemic. And the show that we came together to produce with the consulate is the Wise Woman Show has artists from almost every province. So we're really bringing every piece of Canada together. And it's it's so special because like Mallory said, they're all unique in their own special way.
1: Well, tell us how this collaboration came about.
3: Absolutely. Well, It truly is bringing, as we said, the coast together. We initially had worked with Sylvie and the the Canadian consulate in Atlanta, playing shows, uh, Carly and I's Twin Kennedy, for quite a few years. And we have absolutely loved collaborating with them on so many different projects. Obviously, before the pandemic, we would go and perform concerts in person and we would sing the Canadian Anthem at some of their special events and we just, we've been so honored to get to to partner with them on so many projects and when we wrote the song Wise Woman with Mallory, us three gals wrote this tune together, we honestly felt like it was so much more than just the song, because it's about female empowerment, it's about lifting each other up and and really uh sending the message of of equality being females in in an industry that is is usually male dominated we wanted to to speak our truths and and share this this message of equality from a, a a positive place and we felt like not just putting out the music and the music video we felt like doing a show and featuring a bunch of amazing women would be the way to do it. And we were so lucky to have the Canadian consulate come on board and they believed in the message of the show. They believed in the message of the song. And here we are, the show is tonight. We are just beyond excited.
5: Another man not really listening to what I say. My education and his opinion ain't the same. If you know what's right Don't prove him wrong Play nice, play house And play along If you wanna be Wise woman If I knew Then what I know now I wouldn't stand there In that line I'd be standing out I'd sit pretty At the head of the table I'd be a lady.
1: In the video, you show clips of women all across North America, including your own family and friends. What was it like having women whom you know take part in this?
3: Oh, it was so special. As you said, uh, there's so many women from coast to coast and from Nashville, Tennessee, where we all live now, uh, featured in this video. And It was truly a labor of love to bring together so many clips and to feature so many wise women so we were able to have Mallory's brother is actually the video director so so remotely from Newfoundland he was directing the video and shooting the women in Newfoundland we had a videographer in BC filming and Nashville as well so we were able to show clips of all the women that really inspire us um, our own mothers our sisters our even our newborn baby niece she's only a month old and she's in the video we've we got many women from many different industries represented, a lot of amazing leaders like police women and military. And it's, there's even one of the women from the Consulate General of Canada to the Southeast from the office that, uh, that's in the video. And we're just so proud to represent so many women that inspire and, and lift them all up through this video and through the song. What
1: qualities make a wise woman?
4: What a great question. <laughs> yeah, that's really, we, we haven't been asked that question yet. I mean, what qualities don't make a wise woman? I I don't believe it necessarily comes with age. I think it comes with experience. I think it comes with surrounding yourself with people who are inspiring and other people who are wise and educated and just, yeah, experience surrounding your people by surrounding yourself with inspiring people and powerful people and just listening to their stories and listening to their voices and making those voices feel valued just as much as anybody else is in the room. And I know some of my biggest role models and mentors are, are women. So uh, yeah, girl power. I, I don't know if there's, there's many things that don't make a woman wise. I think, you know, both the good and the bad, the challenging and the, the triumphs, and there's so many things that make a wise woman. And I think what we're trying to do here with with this show and with the video and with the song is sharing those stories with with everybody and adding to that conversation. Because like the girls said earlier, we're in an industry with country music that's very male dominated. Um, and I think change and fighting for equality, no matter the industry, it comes with conversation. So if we can add to that conversation, it'll help people grow a little more wise.
1: The lyrics say, If you know what's right, don't prove him wrong. Play nice, play house, and play along if you want to be a wise woman. These are phrases that many women, women of a certain age, certainly heard growing up. How do you juxtapose those words with what you define as a modern-day wise woman?
3: that's a really a really wonderful question and and thank you for pulling out that line because that's one that really is meaningful to us in the song like you said so many women have been sent these messages from the start you know and and it's something that we all deal with on a daily basis and that's a reason why we wanted to create wise women the show and I think why it's it feels so powerful to bring so many women of, of different ages different genres of music together. Because that, those messages are things that were sent. You know, you can't step into the room and be valued as much. And, you know, maybe the women searching for the type of success in a career like music, that it's more challenging and it, it can have a lot of hurdles. So I think that it's so incredible to celebrate women who are doing it and who are getting out there and making a difference through their music and, and beyond.
1: The melody is quite calming. But the message is very direct. Why did you decide to give this song a soothing tone?
3: The music of this, like you said, is... Is calmer than than the powerful message that it's conveying, but I think sometimes the quieter uh, voices can really share such a powerful message because it's not and it's not a message of anger or if we're not trying to you know cut down the men just because we want to lift up the women. We want to lift everyone up, and it's a message that's for for all genders and um, all ages and and I think that having music that that feels more. I want to say welcoming or
4: um, inclusive can be a good thing. Would you ladies agree? Yeah, for sure. And I also think there's a lot of power in subtlety Mm -hmm. and having this, this calming melody. I think it's kind of cool that the lyrics are kind of like in your face, you know, punch you in the gut. They're super powerful. And to have that complemented with a soothing melody, like Carly said, it's, you know, it's it's welcoming, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's perking people's ears up because of the message. That
1: made me think about the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was such an astonishing role model and individual. She believed no one ever got anywhere by yelling, no screaming in her book. I would say that her credibility as a wise woman and an effective woman was in no way diminished by speaking softly, do
3: I love, you? I love RBG's quote, the, when she says, well, she has so many incredible quotes, but one of my favorites was that she said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And I've always remembered that, and I think that's what we're trying to do, all of us women together, to create this message. And we want people to join us. We don't we want to do it in a in a kind way. Um, and to us, the the most uh, beautiful way that we can share a message that is powerful
4: um, and does pack a punch, like Mallory says, is you you do it through music. I I definitely agree. I think especially with this message we're, we're trying to send. Again, we didn't wanna do it in an aggressive way. We didn't wanna do it in a loud way. We wanted the lyrics to kind of speak for themselves and people to take away from that how, how they will and be able to relate to it in their own way and see their stories in the messaging and, and in the video and then in the show. Yeah, just back to that, like, like you said, I don't think you need to shout your message for it to be heard.
1: Well, Julie, while you're mentioning women together, You and Carly, I was wondering how your bond as sisters informs or enhances your performances.
3: Oh my goodness. I think that being identical twins is like a whole nother level of sisterhood. And for us, it is, it's everything in our musical performance to be specific, as you asked. When we're on stage, we're tapping into that. We call it our twin tuition, <laughs> like our, our twin connection. We're tapping into that all the time. And I, to be honest, I don't know what it's like not to be a twin. So to me, that kind of really insane, amazing connection that we have, where we can often read each other's minds—like I don't know what it's like not to have that. So I, I can't, uh, I can't imagine. But. I know that I don't take it for granted because there have been so many moments on stage, but also in the songwriting room, in all the different stages of creation where I can sense what she's feeling musically speaking, but also like what she's thinking. And it, I mean, it's its a really special thing.
1: Indeed. In 2021 now, many women are still fighting for equality in various areas. As of last September, 865,000 women left the U.S. workforce due to the pandemic. Domestic violence reports from women went up in the last year. And that doesn't even include all of the disparities faced by women of color, Regarding the adversities that women encounter, what message do you hope this song conveys?
3: I think you're right. I think the the struggle continues in so many different ways for women all over the world, and we really hope that the message with wise women and wise woman the show inspires and and empowers our fellow women, and the show itself is is virtual, so everyone can listen, everyone can see it online for for free at seven p m eastern and it's not just music, women are all sharing their empowering messages through music but also through their wise woman words, so they're all sharing words of wisdom in interviews in addition to the show and I think that's such a wonderful way that we can share our messages and our advice with each other. I think that's a wonderful way to think about moving forward in this world together as women, is all about lifting each other up, um, sharing advice with one another, and sharing our wisdom. Because if we share and we support each other, we all grow stronger together.
1: How can people tune in to this evening's event?
3: We are so excited for people to tune in and hear the show. They can find the show on if you go to Facebook or YouTube, you'll find that on the Twin Kennedy pages and we're easy to find at Twin Kennedy, you can also go on the Canadian consulate page in Atlanta they'll have the link as well. And if you haven't already you can sign up for the VIP list and we'll send you an email with all of those links too. so however you find us online, we just cannot wait for you to see this show. Yep, and our, ours are uh, Twin Kennedy is all at Twin Kennedy and Mallory Johnson is all at
4: Mal Johnson Music for the most part. Am I right, Mal? Yes, you're correct. So yeah, so Instagram, Twitter, that's, that's Mal Johnson Music. And then on Facebook, which the video will be cross posted on my account as well. Um, that's Mallory Johnson Music.
3: So there's lots of
4: ways to find us. If you
3: search for Wise Woman, the show, you will find the show. And we cannot wait for you to be a part of it and to it's going to be the closest thing to feeling like we're at a live concert from the comfort and safety of home.
1: Canadian musicians Carly and Julie Kennedy, who make up the band Twin Kennedy, with fellow Canadian country artist Mallory Johnson. Their event with the Canadian consulate, Wise Woman, the show, streams this evening at 7. More information on where and how to live stream the show will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Mary Cassatt was the first American artist to associate and exhibit with the French Impressionists in Paris. Though her own life was unconventional, her paintings depicted the activities of women in their worlds, caring for children, reading, crocheting, and enjoying the company of other women. Cassatt had a professional association and friendship with the French artist Edgar Degas that lasted 40 years. A fictionalized, tumultuous romantic relationship between Degas and Cassatt is at the center of I Always Loved You, a novel written in 2014 by Robin Oliveira, She interweaves another artist couple into the story, Bert Morisot and Edouard Manet. When I spoke with the author after the book came out, she talked about comparisons between the two artist couples.
6: I am not the first person who noticed that Degas and Cassatt had a, a mirror and a contrast in Manet and Morisseau. Degas and Cassatt were different in that neither of them ever married and they did not marry one another and yet they had this passionate lifelong relationship full of breakups and reconciliations and passion for their art and Edward Manet and Bert Morisot were married Bert Morisot was married to Edward Manet's brother Eugène and Edward Manet was married to a woman who may or may not have been his once his father's mistress. Their relationship, it was well known through the years that Berthe Morisot was in love with her brother-in-law. And so I thought that those two contrasting relationships in that small circle of Impressionists were an interesting counterpoint to one another.
1: Mary is stunned by the brilliance of Degas's work. You write from Mary's point of view, the others painted beauty, Degas painted life, he painted with his soul, while she was still searching for her own. How does Edgar help Mary find her soul?
6: Edgar Degas never had a student in his life. He actually had one for two weeks and it was a disaster. So Mary was never actually his student, but he helped her in myriad ways. And one of the conclusions that people have come to over the years is that he helped her find her obsession. And Mary Cassatt was well known early on as being able to paint beautiful expressions on people's faces, which is what Degas most admired in her. And I believe that he helped her to find her subject, which was love essentially, between mothers and their children. And in that expression, so oddly surprising for a woman who never had children. She was able to express a deep humanity, that of maternal love and child love one for the other. And I think that without Degas encouragement toward that end, she may have never been able to have gone on in her artwork. Indeed, he he was the one who invited her into the Impressionist circle, just as she was about ready to leave Paris and give up on art and go home. So he, I believe, was the link The impetus for her.
1: He truly admired her work even early on.
6: He did. In fact, uh, one of the widely reported things that Degas first said about Mary Cassatt was when he encountered one of her pieces of art in the Salon, the yearly exhibition of art that happened every year in Paris. And he encountered a portrait, I think it was of a woman named Ida, and what he said was, C'est vrai, which means this is true. And he meant that she was able to capture on canvas the perfect expression of an emotion. And he looked out for her, he wanted to meet her.
1: Get some insight as to how Degas paints life with your description of how he perceives the city.
6: Outside, Montmartre shimmered in the setting sun. Above the encroaching city, the wind was turning the moulin. He could hear the windmill's blades slowly whispering as they traced their eternal paths. Beneath them murmured the tintinnabulation of cattle bells, The trill of a piano keyboard, the hollow click of a key turning in a lock, an escaped sigh of pleasure from a bedroom window. Degas stood transfixed, the chatter from the café banal and urgent falling away as he strained to hear the other. This aural innocence, the sonnettes and a door slamming in amorous silences and the melody of Moulin dance halls offering seduction, seemed to Degas something essential. But he feared that no matter how many years he had left before his eyes failed him, he would never be able to capture on canvas the whole these simple sounds tore in his heart tonight. The landscape of yearning was always the next brushstroke away, a vanishing eternity no desire of his, no matter how ardent, could ever produce.
1: Sounds make their way into his yearning to capture this impression on canvas. In many ways, your novel is very instructive and I couldn't help but think about aspects of Mary Cassatt's work and how it's been deconstructed not by scholars or art experts, but you know, there's this general perception that perhaps she sublimated her own longing to be a mother in her paintings. But the way you write the story, it's really one of much greater empathy that she has for her mother's loss of Mary's brother and her mother's worry about her other daughter's frail health.
6: Well, I'm pleased to hear that because there is that popular perception that Mary... Cassatt wanted to be a mother and was denied, which I disagree with because early on in her life, she made the reckoning that to have a child would mean the end of a career as it had for so many women. And so I had to look for another reason for her to be so enamored of maternal love. She was very close to her mother. She was very close to her sister And when her sister died, it affected them all quite profoundly. And that is where I found my inspiration for Cassatt's paintings. Hmm. The
1: artists, musicians, and writers of 19th century Paris spent a lot of time together and sometimes crossed into each other's territory. You depict an argument between a poet and a writer and then take another leap to describe the difference between writers and painters. With that part of the story, I wondered if you were asking yourself, so is a painting really worth a thousand words?
6: It's interesting you should say that. You know, I believe that the creative process is the same for any medium. And so I used painting as a bit of a Trojan horse to talk about writing in this novel. The other thing that entered into that conversation was that that conversation between the poet Malame and the novelist Zola, Emile Zola, I actually took that from public letters that they published in, I believe, Le Figaro in Paris back in uh, the 19th century. They were having this public conversation about words, about poetry, about novels, about realism, about what was true and what wasn't true. So much of what they say in that particular argument comes directly out of that. It was not too great a leap to then think that if those writers were in the midst of all those artists, Degas would certainly take up the gauntlet to see if he could challenge Emile Zola to another verbal duel.
1: Well, it's also exciting to think about just being a fly on the wall in that time period, because there seemed to be an interrelationship among artists during that time that is, is warmer, is closer, is more informed than the independent ways that I think artists today work. Would you agree with that?
6: Well, I think so. And I think that was partly being in Paris, because the culture at that time was that they would get together in the evening, either at a cafe or at people's homes for the very celebrated salons. And they were highly cultivated, where poets and writers and artists all got together and intermingled. And so, you know, I look back with some nostalgia on that time, Mm -hmm. because as a writer now, I keep trying to figure out how to make a salon in Seattle so that we can all get together and interact because that's such a stimulating time
1: for all of them. You write about that quite vividly, too. We get sort of a social history of the city itself that you give. And you say that in Paris, art was the business of the city. How was that the case?
6: Art was indeed the business of the city because artists and sculptors and architects came from all over the world, from every single continent, to study there in the City of Light. The Ecole des Beaux-Arts was huge. There were studios everywhere. And the big salon exhibition that went on every year, uh, usually on May 1st, in the Palais de l'Industrie, on the Champs-Élysées, That particular exhibition was mobbed from the moment it opened until the day it ended. Everybody went.
1: Yeah, you said laundresses. I mean, it cuts across social class and education.
6: Yes, it was, you know, I call them hod carriers, the people who carried coal through the city. They saved their money all year to be able to go see the art.
1: Talk about the relationship between Edgar and Mary. To say this was complicated doesn't begin to understate (laughs) it. I mean, this is not a relationship one would ever want one's daughter or sister or any woman you cared about to enter into.
6: I would completely agree with you. (laughs) The way I think about these two and their relationship, which began in 1877 and went on until the day that Edgar Degas died, with multiple breaks, as I said before, and multiple reconciliations, was that they were two impassioned geniuses who were interested in the same thing and who helped one another and who admired one another enormously. And that relationship was cut through by disappointments and decisions that the other person made and betrayals and mostly set, I have to say, in turn by uh, Edgar de who could make decisions you know, on the turn of a hat that would betray his friends. And he did betray Mary Cassatt several times on huge projects that they undertook together. And then at the last moment, he just set aside, regardless of the consequences for Mary's career. And it was those kinds of betrayals that I believe broke Mary's heart. You know, he was a tempestuous, mercurial, very difficult man. She was a driven artist who wanted to succeed so badly and who admired this man. She called him her master, not in the sense of a servant and a master, but someone she admired so much she wanted to learn from him. So it was fraught through from beginning to end with love and anger.
1: Author Robin Oliveira, her 2014 novel based on the life of Mary Cassatt is called I Always Loved You. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about an event at the Bremen Museum featuring the ensemble Bent Frequency, performing music by prominent living women composers. Our theme music is the first time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans, Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Have a safe and good weekend, and thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Mm-hmm.